Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Although it feels a lot longer, it is on March the 11th, as we record this, only two weeks since Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So, where are we in this conflict? Where is it going next? And why is Russia's military performing so badly? Dr. Peter Kadik Adams is a military historian, defence and security analyst, and himself a veteran of the army. He's worked in 58 countries and joins us today to give us the latest on what's happening on the front line in Ukraine. Peter, welcome to Doomsday Watch. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. And you're joining us today, I think, from Croatia. Is that right? Yeah, um, the war happened to find me here, so I'm going to stay here for the time being. It's much closer to the events that are taking place. And as I found out last night, when a, a Russian drone crashed in Zagreb, I'm much closer to the front lines than most of you. Well, that's uh, uh, fascinating and, and unexpected. Um, Peter, as, as you've described, uh, you, you've got military experience, you're an analyst, and you're also a historian. Um, we're basically at the end of the second week of this war, of Russia's invasion. Um, and it feels as if we're also in the second phase uh, the uh, the invasion began with what was a failed attempt at a blitzkrieg, and now we've moved on to a grimly familiar spectacle from the Syrian campaign of indiscriminate shelling and, and other aerial attacks on uh, cities, presumably with the hope of grinding the Ukrainian population into a capitulation. Is that how you see uh, this stage of the conflict? I'm not sure whether we're into stage two at the moment. The Russians, uh, starting on the 24th of February, clearly had um, ideas not even of a blitzkrieg. I would say that they had been, or Vladimir Putin, um, had been misadvised uh, that uh, Ukraine was ripe for the taking. uh, And all he had to do is knock on the door. Um, The people of Ukraine would open it with open arms and uh, he would have another easy conquest um, along with you know, the eastern Donbass uh, and the Crimea. Um, uh, He took that advice. Um, His troops assembled in Belarus and in the eastern Donbass, task forces assembled in the Black Sea. 
Uh, and uh, what happened? Well, the Ukrainians defended themselves, which came as a great surprise. Uh, and that wasn't in the playbook at all. Um, I think Putin had, had budgeted from from all I've heard for a three day campaign. Um, the troops took very little with them in the way of ammunition, supplies, uh, food, water, and fuel. So consequently, when they ran up against opposition, um, they not only hadn't expected it, hadn't trained for it, but had no resupply. And that sort of explains why the whole thing is sort of ground to a halt. Uh, but the other big lesson uh, that uh, the Russian military certainly should have taken home um, is General Winter. And General Winter has been very good for the Russians because uh, he sorted out Napoleon, he sorted out Hitler. Um but the Ukrainians were part of the Soviet forces in the Second World War, what they called the Great Patriotic War, alongside the Russians. And so um, both sides know that General Winter uh, subsides in March, uh, and then you get Rasputita, uh, which is mud, which um, just stops everything dead in its tracks. And we've all seen the social media images of these amazing columns of, of Russian tanks that have, and, and vehicles that have just been abandoned. Um, so I think the Russians are still trying to work out what to do about phase one having ground to a halt. The cities were always going to beckon. Uh, and cities are really, really important to the cultural understanding of both the Ukrainian and the Russian armed forces, because right. their reputation together was forged in the Second World War by the three big city fights of the defence of Leningrad, the Battle of Stalingrad, and then the Battle of Berlin. So it's something they both know, you know, control of the cities, you know, certainly in terms of Ukraine, which is where you will separate the people from the government. If you want to, if you want to control this country, you have to separate the two. And that means taking the capital city of Kiev. I want to come on to talk about Kiev, but before we do that, Putin clearly was badly advised. This is not to forgive or, or to give him an excuse. But this idea of a three-day dash for the capital has not worked out. Now, there's some evidence of differences of opinion in right at the top of the Russian leadership. We all saw the uh, stumbling inadequacy of Sergei Narishkin, the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, at that famous open meeting of the Russian Security Council. And that gave us the evidence that at least one of uh, Putin's senior figures was not at all on board with this invasion. And there's also reporting that none of his uh, sort of senior senior players really knew exactly when and what Putin was going to order. But at the same time, it appears that both the US and the UK intelligence services had a pretty clear idea of what was up his sleeve. So what does that tell us about the leadership dynamics? Okay, I mean, this, this is really interesting, and on both sides, as it, it boils down to political will. Um, so the, the Western intelligence services were, you know, watching every single move by satellite, by social media, by monitoring trains, by lots of uh, people on the ground feeding in uh, data, which becomes intelligence. So we had a, an excellent idea of what might be on the cards. And in a normal world, you would join up the dots and say, yeah, that's an invasion. But political will, if you don't, if you don't have a military mind, you don't want to accept that hostilities around the corner, then dictates you to say, yeah, but um, he, he'll never do it. 
that was a category in which both the European Union, NATO, and I have to say the United Kingdom put themselves. So the invasion, when it happened, came as a great shock um, to absolutely everyone. And it took quite a few days um, for all the world's organizations to sort themselves out and suddenly realize that sanctions and words on their own don't count uh, and you need a sort of military solution in terms of supplying weapons. Um, From the Russian point of view, it's it's also political will. Well, we now know there are conscripts uh, in this fight. They were simply aware they were going on manoeuvres in Belarus, these these widely advertised manoeuvres, which are in fact a way of concentrating the troops ready for invasion. Um, and they were told about 12 hours beforehand, right, in 12 hours you're crossing the border. Don't expect to have to fight, um, but you are going across as a military organisation. And if the charge d'affaires in Canberra in Australia is to be believed, um, the Ukrainian charge d'affaires, he revealed at a press conference a few days ago that some of the Russian troops going into Ukraine didn't have much in the way of military equipment with them, but what they did have was parade uniforms to march through through the streets of Kiev when it was all over. Um, so there's all sorts of odd things going on there. Yeah, I mean, there's huge dissent within the Russian senior uh, levels of command, and I don't understand why there was that public dressing down of Putin's foreign intelligence uh, officer. I mean, everything that comes out of Russia is for a purpose. All their news uh, and images and everything else, radio broadcasts, uh, are very, very closely managed. So this is clearly a message that Putin himself is in control. This isn't anything to do, this isn't sort of ideas of his generals. Um, again, this morning, 11th of March, I'm uh, I'm reading that he sacked uh, eight of his top generals. Uh, but this all boils, boils down to Putin's Russia, which has become very like Hitler's Germany in 1945, where uh, dissent uh, is treated as disloyalty. And it's very difficult then for anyone in a position of authority or influence uh, to try and influence the, the, the man at the top's mind, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and what seems to have happened is he seems to have gone into a, a sort of frightened retreat over the last couple of years because of COVID. He's kept himself at a distance from a lot of people and has really largely been fed what he wants to hear by sycophants. And that's parked him away from reality. And that's probably one of the reasons why we're in this situation now. One of the things that lots of people are asking themselves is, how is it that the Russian army seems so incapable? Now, any country is going to have to rely to some extent in in a total war situation on conscripts. But actually, Russia was focusing, relatively speaking, a relatively small invasion army, a strike force, if you like. And yet they still seem to have these inadequate troops. So what's what's your explanation for that? Well, I think what's happened since the Cold War is that Europe has moved away from conscript forces. Um, France had a huge cultural you know, problem with moving away from a, a norm that had been uh, you know, evident ever since the days of Napoleon. Um, uh, and so it's generally accepted in the West that if you want a a cutting-edge professional force, you have a smaller force, but it's much, much better trained. And I think we've associated that norm with Russia, um, but of course there they still have conscription. And we we just don't understand just how badly uh, Russian conscripts are treated. Modern military equipment is, especially the hard end, is incredibly sophisticated and difficult to learn how to use. Uh, And it's not that people are, are thick, it's that they've got to take time. Uh, and we all know 
when Microsoft offer you an upgrade and it takes you another week to get your head around your new version of Microsoft. Yes. Um, you, how how if you don't use that skill, that skill fades very quickly. Yeah. So that's that's part of the reason why the the Russian solution um, hasn't been very good. But it turns out the Rus- the Russian Federation, just like the old Soviet Union, is deeply deeply conservative. And they don't like doing new things. And when they're confronted with problems, they go back to old-fashioned solutions. Um, but I think this was part of what was going on. Um, how do you get large numbers of manpower uh, into uh, Western Russia and Belarus quickly? Uh, you raid the pool of conscripts. And I don't think that was ever meant to be the solution to begin with, because we, we saw in the wars in uh, the two wars in Chechnya uh, and elsewhere that Using conscripts in a modern environment, particularly a complex modern environment of urban terrain, is, is not a great solution. Things can go wrong very, very rapidly. Um, so, I mean, why has the Russian war machine uh, fallen apart? Um, I mean, it, it goes back to this three-day victory. Uh, and if you're going to have a three-day victory and you take minimal supplies, then your logistics are going to let you down unless you have that three days. And, of course, we're now into the, th- the third week. It's partly a massive logistics failure. And again, if I go back to the Second World War, I mean, two-thirds to three-quarters of your attacking force, whether you're invading Germany or you're doing D-Day landing in France, is actually the backup, the logistics, the trucks that carry all the ammunition for the guns uh, and everything else, all the medical supplies. That clearly isn't the case with the Russians. You know, their medical um, backup is apparently negligible and absolutely awful. Yeah. Uh, So... I mean, there's a huge element of that. And that's simply because um, the Russians haven't done modern war with only professional forces uh, for a very long time. If we're, on, on this scale, if ever. I mean, this is, this is the first big war that Russia has taken part in since 1945. Yeah. And what we're taught in the military is, is there's something called the components of fighting force, which is what makes up every nation's armed forces. And there's the physical, which is the numbers. Uh, there's the conceptual, uh, which is the training uh, and the, the, the doctrine. Um, and then there's the moral, which is the will to fight. And the moral the component completely outflanks and is far more important than the other two. Napoleon wouldn't have understood the terminology, but he would have understood uh, that the moral is, is to the others as three is to one. Yeah. Uh, and the Russians have just lost that will to fight because everything else has let them down. Um, but the other the other part of the equation, and we haven't really discussed it now uh, until now, is the the Ukrainians, and it's all very well coming up with a great combat plan, an invasion plan. But if you leave out the paragraph labelled enemy uh, and what they might do, then of course your, your your plan is going to fall apart. No no plan survives first contact with the enemy, as we say. And the Ukrainians will to fight, even those ethnic Russians who live in Ukraine. It's it's has just been demonstrated in a way that I don't think the West ever expected. I, I if I'm honest, I didn't give much for hope for the Ukrainians' chances, but certainly the Russians had never ever calculated that Ukraine would suddenly find that actually flag mattered all of a sudden, uh, and they didn't want to be a forcibly part of Russia. I'm very glad you mentioned the Ukrainians because we need to talk about them um, at the beginning. There was a lot of uh, sort of assumptions, even on those very well disposed to Ukraine, about the fact that they ultimately really didn't have any hope of holding off a Russian invasion. 
as you rightly said, uh, the the passion, the moral of of a of a country defending its homeland, and then of course you add on to that the layer of leadership for President Zelensky and and what he, he's proved himself to be an inspiring military leader, but also a national leader. So we're now at a stage where um, perhaps those people saying, "Well, it's very tragic, but inevitably the Russians will win this war." Is that still a safe assumption? That the Russians would win the war? No, I don't think it is. Um, but I mean, let's go back to Ukraine for a second, um, and indeed Russia. I think some of the metrics of this campaign were set um, in the quick collapse of Afghanistan last summer, um, when the West were meant to be, were shown to be extraordinarily weak um, in their resolve to carry on uh, defending another country. And their training and equipment of the Afghan army was shown to be really, really faulty because everything collapsed within days. Yeah, um, That left an impression on the Russians, but also it left an impression on President Zelensky, who was presented with the fact that you either flee the country and it collapses instantly, or you stay there and you face death. And I think what's going on in Zelensky's mind is he's accepted that he's probably going to die which is a very, very brave assumption to make. But once you make that in a combat situation, don't worry about that anymore. Yeah, It's there. You've already made your pact with your maker uh, and your country. Uh, and then all of a sudden, your brain is clear. Right, now what can I do? How do I help my people? Uh, you know, his words and the way he delivers them have a real, real validity. And I think the other, the other point to you know, hijack and bring in here is this is the first major war that's been fought through social media. Yes, the Arab Spring isn't, you know, wasn't what wasn't a war, and what was going on in Syria um, is not a major war in Europe between two peers, one of whom is a nuclear power. That really, really makes a difference. So, for social media and dash cam footage—I mean, we've all seen it, but we've all been really, really struck by how immediate and grisly it is. I mean, some of the some of the images are absolutely ghastly. Yeah, but it does bring it to us in our face in a way I don't think we ever expected. Um, and we also thought the Russians would be masters of cyberspace. It turns out that the Russians aren't that good at cyber. Yes, they've been um, you know, blacking things out. But you know, the Ukrainian cyber uh, generation have swung into action, and they've been just as good. Uh, and then around the world, I don't think anyone really thought about that sort of vast international conglomerate called Anonymous. Yes. Who, you know, do all their own hacking for their own reasons, who seem to have come together as a collective and said, the Russians, the bad guys, let's do what we can to to destroy their uh, abilities in cyberspace. And a lot of that has taken place. So cyberspace has suddenly become a, a, a really weird environment where there's a huge battle going on that we're completely unaware of and where there's parity. Indeed. And, and related with that is, of course, the, the information warfare, where, again, you know, we're, we're used to saying, well, the Russians are brilliant at disinformation. And, you know, they've, there are so many people who, are, who no longer trust the, their own government or they don't trust what they see. But it is uh, undoubtedly the case that for Western audiences, the Russian attempts have been been you know pretty pretty hopeless whereas ukraine and this is of course is not 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 to undermine the validity of the claims they're making but ukraine has done a brilliant job of communicating the narrative of a heroic country struggling to to you know defend its own freedom 
Yeah, I mean, the information war is really, really interesting. Russia hasn't been able to block or jam social media. It's woken up quite late to the fact that it hasn't controlled the information war. That's why the TV tower was uh, was targeted in Kiev. Um, and I've been saying for a few days now that they, they will renew their efforts to try and black out everything that's coming out of Ukraine. And it turns out in the 21st century with, with satellites here, there and everywhere, you just can't do it. Yeah. Um, and this this is the bind they've got themselves in. There is no positive message coming out. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, I think they've given up messaging the West. What they are messaging, and they've been very good at this, uh, is their own people. So their domestic audience of you know however large it is, um, they have managed to control outside media. So if you live in Vladivostok or, or wherever in Russia, you only get the Russian point of view. And that's why 50, 60, 70% of Russians are supporting the war only because they, they don't get the view from the other side. The young generation of cosmopolitans who live in Moscow and, and particularly St. Petersburg are accessing, they, they know how to nav- navigate their way around the Russian bloc on Facebook and everything else. And they do realize there's another story. But, um, you know, for the vast majority of Russians, they don't. So that's the only bit of the information war the Russians are able to control, which means, you know, whatever the ultimate outcome in in Ukraine, they will never, ever be, uh, you know, the outcome will never be accepted. Indeed. I mean, something that I, I picked up the other day, which I found fascinating, was that even in Crimea, where you might expect there to be a very sort of pro Putin, but also pro war perspective. Uh, middle-class, educated Russian Crimeans, as, as they now are, um, are, are very, very unhappy about what's happening. And, and many are you know, voting with their feet and trying to get out of the country. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, the, there is an outflow of, of Russians. Um, we, you know, we talk about two million refugees flooding into the West, and it'll be beyond that by, by now. Um, but there has been a, a, a trickle of middle-class Russians who've been going out to Istanbul, where there's a large community, um, uh, and also into Finland. So clearly, they do, they don't like it. And this, I mean, this goes straight back to Afghanistan. Um, that campaign for the Russians lasted ten years, and there was a steady trickle of bad news and body bags. Which, no matter how much you try and control things, that was in the old Soviet Union, um, you can't hide. I mean, it's really difficult to divine, you know, the true state of affairs in terms of figures and statistics. If the Rus- if the Ukrainians are to be believed, then the Russians have lost at least 12,000. Um, you might halve that to, to get perhaps something closer to accuracy. But what we have to remember is, is that in 10 years of war, Russia lost 15,000 lives in Afghanistan. Um, and the, the rate of casualties, whatever they are, is way in excess after 10 days for a fortnight uh, in Ukraine than it ever was in uh, in Afghanistan. Um, The Russians have already lost that particular battle. Peter, that takes us to what is coming next. Uh, It's clear that there is going to be this indiscriminate attacks on various cities. Now, of course, some of them are already fairly depopulated, but but certainly not empty. Uh, and so much hangs on the face of Kiev. But clearly, we've also got uh, the prospect of the whole of the coast of, of Ukraine, that the southern belt uh, falling into Russian hands. So what's your, your sense 
on uh, where this war is going in the next week or so? What we have to start with is what was the objective of, of, of Vladimir Putin? Well, it was to seize the country. Um, but go, going further, I mean, w- what's the advantage of Ukraine to Russia? Um, it, it, it's, it's a geopolitical buffer, um, but also it extends Russia's influence. But also, I mean, Ukraine is full of uh, natural resources um, in terms of coal and all sorts of minerals. But also Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. Yeah. So where are we going? Right, the South Coast section is is actually probably one of the most important. And so the ports of Mariupol on one side of the Crimea and and, uh, and Odessa from the other, that's how stuff comes into and out of uh, Ukraine by sea. So Mariupol, not being far away from the rebel-held area, was always going to be vulnerable. And you know, for all a lot of the fighting in the Donbass, we always thought was going to to link up. Uh, with the rebel-held area and the seaport of uh, of Mariupol, yeah, uh, and there's, there's been fighting around the airport there for uh, ever since 2014, and effectively it is now falling. Um, Odessa is the is the other target, but the task force that's been waiting offshore for for three weeks has now taken casualties themselves from Ukrainian ground troops, and I think has gone off for the moment. How long can you keep a maritime task force? Uh, floating around at sea doing nothing. Well, three weeks turns out to be about the limit. So that threat has gone away for the moment. So the fighting will go on uh, around the two cities of Kiev uh, and Kharkiv, uh, although Russia needs to control the capital uh, to control the country. What it doesn't want to do is occupy the country. I mean, this this force they've got, however large it is, 200, 250,000, is nothing like enough to occupy and control Ukraine particularly against partisans, for the forthcoming few years, because that, that's what it would mean. Yeah. Um, so all they can do is hope to occupy and, and, and control from the um, from Kiev, from the capital. Um, but the Russians logistically are, are not well balanced um, for a city fight. In normal circumstances, that might say, okay, so they would grind to a halt, pause, and let air take over. Yeah. Well, it turns out that all the um, equipment that the West has sent to Ukraine recently and has been doing for the last few years, Britain, I think, has trained 22,000 Ukrainian soldiers in anti-aircraft, anti-tank weaponry. Uh, It turns out that that wasn't wasted. So much so that Russian aircraft now rarely operate in daylight hours. And the only time you really see any large numbers are of MiGs floating over the Ukrainian airspace is at night, which is why the, the effort now is to uh, to send to Ukraine uh, air defence missiles that, that work with infrared, uh, and you can target the, the Russians at night. Yeah. So the thrust has got to be, uh, at Kharkiv, which is pretty much surrounded anyway, uh, and Kiev, which is, is nearly surrounded, um, and even from the distance that uh, some of the Russians are away in Belarus, you can still fire cruise missiles uh, at both cities. Um, and these are you know, conventional weapons. Yes. Uh, and you can target those with pinpoint precision. But that's what's been happening. So, I mean, there's been 600 cruise missiles um, fired since the, the attack began. Uh, and that's how the Russians will keep up the pressure. Um, and for them, what they're doing is they're weaponizing the media reporting of that. That's why they're targeting civilians to undermine the morale of the Ukrainians themselves with terror, but also to weaken the resolve of the rest of the world. Look, you're never going to win this. 
um, you know, the, the, um, the Ukrainian civilians are our pawns, back off or we'll make this worse. So that's what's going on. And of course, you know, the, the traditional Russian view of civilians in combat, and certainly brought out in, in Grozny and Chechnya, and particularly in, in Syria, is they don't matter. I mean, it's complete and total traditional, utter disregard for civilians. And you saw that in Stalingrad and, you know, all the big Second World War battles. Um, and that's true today. So um, targeting hospitals uh, and schools uh, and apartment blocks um, is no accident. Um, they simply don't care. They've underlined that in two different ways. And, and, and one is by ramping up this th- insidious threat of using chemical weapons, by suggesting that the West or, or Ukraine were developing chemical weapons of their own and therefore we must retaliate in a, a similar fashion. Um, and the second is putting their nuclear forces on, on heightened alert. So that's a really interesting point you've just come to there. You, they're threats, but they're, what you're saying is they're also bluffs, effectively. Yeah, I mean, I may be forced to eat my words in the, the next few days, but I think that's exactly what they are. I mean, if, you, if, if we deal with the nuke side first, at whatever stage you deploy a tactical nuclear weapon, there's no point in, in sending an ICBM to, to New York. I mean, that's just not on the cards. No. It wouldn't achieve anything, and it doesn't help the situation either in any possible way. Um, but were you to release a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere in Ukraine, for a start, you would want all your Russian soldiers to be kitted out in NBC kit with gas masks and all the rest of it. Yeah. None of the Russian troops have deployed with any NBC protection whatsoever. Neither have any vehicles been spotted driving this stuff up towards the troops already deployed. So there are all sorts of warning signs, signs that you would see that. Um, and to a certain extent, the same with chemical warfare. Yes. Um, you mix the chemicals as close to the launching site as possible. Uh, and you take them there by tanker, preferably actually by train. So it's easy to watch for the kit that's going to be involved in some kind of launch like that. Uh, and we know, you know all the air bases where the, the, the planes are operating from. We know all the... Uh, assembly areas because we've been watching them, you know, right down to the actual vehicles. Uh, and, you know, none of this are portraying any kind of threat at the moment. So it is, it, at the moment, it, it, it's a bluff. Uh, and the bluff is there to panic the West, to get them to cave in, to put pressure on the Ukrainians. I see this all from all different angles. Lots of newspaper co- commentators, lots of people in social media saying, right, give the Russians what they want, but stop the war. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, so much of, so, you know, my message to people is all the time is being, stay calm. You know, this is the way the Russians fight. They weaponize refugees. I mean, you know, and two million refugees is good news for them because it's, it's, it's turning the NATO nations and the EU nations upside down with panic and fear and worry, just looking after these refugees, thinking how many more are on the horizon. And, I mean, effectively for them, that's war that's come to them. Yes. It isn't soldiers, but it's refugees fleeing from soldiers. So, you know, this this is all part of the Russian tactic. Peter, at this point, what I'd really like to do is also then uh, look backwards. Something that you, as a historian, have, have written about, uh, I think in a book that's coming out this year, is about the, the final battle uh, for Germany and Berlin. And, of course, that was the, Russia, the, the Soviet army combining Ukraine and Russia. And and I think uh, 
you're seeing interesting parallels with the situation now, but the participants sort of transformed. I've lectured at the UK Defence Academy for, 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 for 20 years. And whenever there's a war, the war historians are sort of encouraged to provide their thoughts because all of a sudden, um, you know, we've wound the clock back, really not to 1989, but to 1945. Uh, and there's a real realisation that we have no idea what's around the corner. Yeah, We don't know what, what the signposts are. So we have to go back to the only thing we've got, which is the map of the past. Uh, and I think, you know, there are a lot of parallels. And, and intellectually, I'm trying to fight them off because it's too easy to say, oh, well, this is, you know, at the moment, this is the Battle of the Bulge all over again, you know, attacking at the wrong time of year in difficult terrain against an enemy who you thought would be a pushover and, and, and isn't. But in, in, in the broader sense, quite clearly, there are parallels because it's history that set the agenda. Putin himself is obsessed by history. Yes. He's very proud of his ancestors who fought in the Second World War, but he's written about history. Um, and, and to him, you know, the Second World War and rolling back the frontiers to, to good old Russia, to the, the USSR, are part of his agenda. I mean, the parallels I see in a military sense are 1945 um, with a, uh, a wounded Germany that still has a lot of bite um, uh, and you know you could put your, your Ukraine in that sort of fashion, but you could also say you know the Russian leadership is very much like like Hitler in his bunker, not being told that the, the reality of the situation. But I, I mean, there's another way history is repeating itself. Um, some images were appearing over the last few days of the, the Russian military forces in the Donbass, um, the local militia there, and they are armed with Second World War Russian rifles and anti-tank rifles. It's incredible. They've got modern military clothing and helmets, but their weaponry has literally come out of museums. And, I mean, the, the, the image that really struck me this morning when I saw it is in Kiev there's an anti-tank obstacle, which is, is, is called a hedgehog made of angle iron, welded or bolted together. You saw these on all the D-Day beaches. Yes. Well, some of them have been placed on streets in the middle of Kiev, which you would expect. But one has a plaque on it indicating it's been brought out of a Second World War museum and parked on a street. So you've actually got a museum exhibit being reused for the same purpose. That speaks you know, a thousand words for how you know, history in this particular area, which has been dubbed by some historians as the bloodlands of Europe, how history is repeating itself. Yeah. Well, then finally, um, Peter, tell us the name of the book that you have coming out this year, which will help people understand some of these uh, historic uh, features. Okay, well, my book, which is coming out in May, is called uh, Victory in the West, um, The Last Hundred Days of the Second World War in Europe. In the United States, uh, it's called Fire and Steel. And it's actually the third volume of my Second World War trilogy. Um, I, it's already off the publishers now, so it's too late to sort of pen a final paragraph saying, watch this space. But I think that, you know there are so many parallels in the text and even in the pictures uh, that you will draw between uh, 2022 and 1945. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners, having heard this, will, will be very uh, keen to look, look those books up. So, uh, Peter Caddick-Adams, thank you so much for this wide-ranging, fascinating discussion. Uh, and thank you for helping our listeners to understand what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. Thank you very much. 
We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.